Beloved in Christ, peace be with you. This is Catholic evangelist and Bible teacher Hector Molina, welcoming you to this episode of my podcast series, A Walk in the Word, my weekly deep dive Bible study that explores and unpacks the riches of the Sunday Mass readings. Well, my dear friends in Christ, we continue our celebration of this glorious Easter season. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. For our purposes today, we're going to be exploring the readings associated with the fourth Sunday of Easter. And before we get started, as usual, I want to encourage you to grab a copy of your Bible. That way you're able to follow along with us as we journey through the scriptures. I'm going to be, as usual, quoting from the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. For those of you who are watching this podcast episode via our YouTube channel, welcome. Don't forget to hit that like button. And if you have yet to subscribe to our channel, my question is simply, what are you waiting for? (laughs) Hit that red subscribe button and the notification bell. Two things happen when you do that. Number one, YouTube is forced to notify you the moment we upload a new awesome episode of our podcast. Number two, and this is a really great thing, with each subscriber, the more subscribers we have, the more notification bells are rung, the more we impact YouTube's algorithm, which means that they will be receiving a message from us saying that this content is valuable and they should be pushing this out to more and more viewers. And that's a great thing because the whole purpose of this channel is to make Christ known. It's to evangelize, to share the good news. So help us to help YouTube to spread the good news. We really, really do appreciate it. And for those of you who'd like to learn more about Upper Room Studios, about this new media ministry outreach and evangelization apostolate, I encourage you to visit our brand new Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina. Consider becoming a patron of Upper Room Studios for as little as a few dollars a month, $5 a month, the cost of a fancy cup of coffee. You can become a patron, which entitles you to what? To early access to the content that we produce, behind the scenes footage, special interviews, and content that I produce exclusively for my patrons as a way of expressing my gratitude to them. Without my patrons, none of this would be possible. So I want to give a shout out to all my amazing patrons for their love, their support, their encouragement, and for sowing into this ministry. This really is a community that we're building. And so I want to encourage you, if you have yet to become a patron, become a patron today. Visit patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina to find out more. Now, my brothers and sisters, Without further ado, why don't we take a walk in the Word? And we begin, as always, by invoking God's blessing, by asking the Lord for His grace, by invoking the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and our hearts that we would be properly disposed to receive all that He has to teach us, to reveal to us. That this Bible study, that this episode, that this podcast episode might truly edify us and deepen and build our faith. And so we begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. 
My dear friends, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles and join me as we begin our meditation. Today is what is known as Good Shepherd Sunday. As you'll see in a moment, the readings really communicate to us the title and one of the great titles and images that we associate with our blessed Lord. He spoke of himself as the Good Shepherd. And so today, as usual during this Easter season, we celebrate and we meditate and reflect upon this wonderful icon, that of the Good Shepherd. So happy Good Shepherd Sunday to you. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 10. And as I've mentioned to you before, we during this year B of the liturgical cycle are primarily going to be focusing in on the Gospel of Mark, but as I've mentioned before, during the Lenten and Easter seasons, Holy Mother Church does supplement the Gospel readings with passages from the other Gospels. Last week, we were in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, to be exact, describing one of the post-resurrection appearances of our blessed Lord. And for our purposes today, we are in John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, we have this wonderful discourse, Jesus speaking of himself as the good shepherd. And this happens in the context, in the context of Jesus teaching in the temple. One of the interesting features of the Gospel of John is that unlike the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they spend a lot of their time, if you read and survey their Gospels, they describe many of the events, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, and the teachings, the parables that Jesus worked, delivered during his time in the northern part of the Holy Land, what we call the region of the Galilee, okay, the Galilee of the Gentiles. They spend a lot of their time and energy describing all that unfolded. And the fact of the matter is that the, the bulk of Jesus' ministry was really centered around the Sea of Galilee, around northern Israel. But John, in a particular way, not that he exclusively chronicles and details Jesus' actions and his teachings in the southern part of the Holy Land, what we call Jerusalem and Judea, but he does focus much of his writing, describing the events and unpacking the teachings in great detail, as opposed to the other Gospels, the synoptics that's, that are much briefer in their description of these parables. Whereas John, given how densely theological and how mystical his gospel is, he goes into much greater depth, and there's a certain profundity when it comes to John's writing. So this is one of those instances where Jesus is in the southern part of Israel, the Holy Land, He's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, delivering a number of parables and teachings. And in this case, he is speaking of, he's delivering what we call the Good Shepherd Discourse. That's just to set the stage 
for the gospel that we're going to read right now. And so we're in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. John chapter 10, 11 through 18. And so we read, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. As the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, beloved, this is an iconic passage from the Gospel, no doubt. This discourse, the Good Shepherd Discourse. And what I would like to do, as usual, is I would like to unpack this passage a verse at a time. And I'm sure as you listen to this gospel, as you surveyed this gospel, that you were reminded of the iconic psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. We have Jesus saying, identifying himself as the good shepherd. We have David, who was a shepherd himself, if you remember, before becoming king, declaring in this iconic psalm that the Lord is his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness For his name's sake, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup overflows." Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord 
forever. Amen. One of the most famous and iconic of Psalms, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I never tire of praying those words. I never tire of reflecting on that particular Psalm. It is just absolutely beautiful. And I don't know about you, but it conveys just a powerful peace, a soothing comfort to echo those words penned so many thousands of years ago by David himself, a shepherd, well acquainted with what it means to be a good shepherd. And so he extols God, declaring that he is the good shepherd. And we find in the gospel, we find in the gospel passage, Jesus identifying himself as the good shepherd, not a good shepherd, but the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd in contrast with, obviously, bad shepherds. And it's important that we note this. He is distinguishing himself as the good shepherd. He goes on to describe what makes this shepherd, what makes him so good. He goes on, verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in essence, really the heart and soul of this message, what makes him so good, what makes the the, the good shepherd so good is the fact that he is willing to lay down his life, to sacrifice himself for his sheep, to lay it down for the sake of saving and protecting his sheep. Verse 12, he who is a hireling, that is a hired hand, is not the shepherd, but he's been hired to watch over and to protect the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, because the hireling is someone who's been hired, contracted to watch over the sheep, and so the sheep are not his own, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. So he's describing the difference between the good shepherd and a hireling. Because when the wolf comes, the hireling ultimately will be frightened. He'll be scared off. He'll leave the sheep and flee. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and cares nothing for the sheep. So the hireling has no love for his sheep. Therefore, he is not compelled to sacrifice and to sacrifice it all for the sheep in his care. Because he's a hireling, when danger approaches, He doesn't think of the well-being of the sheep, but he thinks about his own well-being, his own survival, and he flees. He cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Another feature, aside from the fundamental fact that the good shepherd loves his sheep, the good shepherd is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. 
He stipulates here in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. There is a knowledge. There is an intimacy between the sheep and the shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Remember this, the shepherd spends so much time in the company of his sheep. The sheep surround the shepherd. The sheep know the smell of the shepherd. There's a a knowledge, an intimacy, a familiarity between the shepherd and the sheep. And what's more, if ever you have spoken to a real-life shepherd, they'll tell you that they spend so much time in the company of their sheep that the sheep come to recognize the voice of the shepherd. I don't know if you can go on YouTube and there are certain videos and they're quite comical where you'll have people kind of visiting a farm and they're outside of the pen, so to speak, the sheepfold, and they want to call the sheep over. And they're making all of these sounds, trying to kind of mimic what a shepherd would sound like. And the sheep don't come. No matter what they do, they can hold out food. The sheep will not come. But the moment the shepherd utters a sound, as soon as they hear his voice, what do they do? They immediately run over and gravitate towards the shepherd. Why? Because they know the voice of the shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. There is an an intimacy. There is a familiarity. They know his voice. You know, it's interesting because Pope Francis, throughout his pontificate, he's used this image whenever he speaks to, to, to priests. He describes priests as necessarily needing to have the smell of the sheep. And what is he saying there? Well, they need to be in the company of the faithful. They need to immerse themselves, if they're a parish priest, in the life of their parishioners to be in constant contact with the faithful so that, in essence, using this imagery, they can have the smell of the sheep. A person, a priest, is not a good shepherd, or a bishop is not a good shepherd unless he immerses himself in the life of the people that are under his charge, under his care. And certainly there are examples of not very good shepherds who really don't spend much time in the company of their sheep. They don't have that familiarity, that intimacy with the faithful. And so Pope Francis on a number of occasions has used that metaphor and has called on priests in general to have the smell of the sheep. And that's a good thing. But I would say to add to that, that in addition to having the smell of the sheep— The priests, the bishops, ought to sound like shepherds, and that isn't always the case. See, priests and bishops are representatives of Jesus Christ, and they not only have to immerse themselves in the life of their respective faith communities or their dioceses, But nevertheless, they need to sound like shepherds. They need to sound like the one true and good shepherd, who is Jesus Christ. 
and they need to speak with his voice. They need to communicate his truth faithfully without departing from that deposit of faith, without departing from that gospel. So when we speak of good shepherds, yes, they must necessarily smell like the sheep, have the smell of sheep, but they also should sound like shepherds and ultimately like the good shepherd who is Jesus Christ. And they are shepherds, our pastors, our priests, our bishops in the name of Jesus, representing not themselves, but representing the true and good and eternal shepherd, Jesus Christ. I am the good shepherd, verse 14. I know my own and my own know me. Now, our Lord here in this particular gospel identifies himself as the good shepherd. And I mentioned to you at the outset, he's certainly distinguishing himself not only from other shepherds, <laughs> he is the good shepherd, but he's distinguishing himself from bad shepherds. And it's interesting because in the Old Testament, there's a famous passage in chapter 34 of the book of the prophet Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is much like Jesus in the temple speaking to bad shepherds, namely the religious authorities, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, those that were in authority, the shepherds of that particular day. And in this passage, and I I want you to pay close attention, Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 16, we read, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. So Ezekiel is being commanded by God to speak against, to denounce the bad shepherds of Israel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, Ho, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. Let me stop there for a second, because this is going to get rough. Here we have Ezekiel denouncing the religious leaders, the clergy of that particular day, because they were bad shepherds. And he describes what makes them so bad. These shepherds are solely concerned with feeding themselves, not feeding the sheep. And that's the charge of the shepherd is to to lead the sheep to green pastures to lead them, to to feed them, to provide for them. Because the sheep left to their own devices, left to themselves, they're not able to survive without the guidance of the shepherd. But these shepherds are only interested in feeding themselves. He goes on, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. Again, eat the fat of what? The sheep. You clothe yourselves with the wool that comes from where? It comes from the sheep. 
You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. So, in essence, he's describing opportunistic religious leaders who are feasting off of and are taking advantage of the sheep. Now, this is not a problem unique to the time of Ezekiel. It certainly was not unique to the time of Jesus. In every epoch, in every era, there have been bad shepherds. There's no denying that. Jesus, in choosing his 12 apostles, he chose Judas, who ultimately would betray him, who ultimately would sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Indeed, a bad shepherd. And so bad shepherds have always been with us, unfortunately, but it's a reality. Taking advantage of the sheep. And in our particular day, we are well acquainted with the sins of bad shepherds. They continue to take advantage of the faithful. And we mourn that. We're we're deeply offended and injured by that whenever we find out. And again, we've had plenty of headlines that have borne out that reality, the reality of bad shepherds. And so Ezekiel here is denouncing the bad shepherds of his particular day. Verse 4, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the crippled you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. I mean, this is, talk about a rebuke, talk about an indictment. He is describing all of the faults and the failings, the many ways in which these shepherds were derelict in their duty, in their sacred duty to take care of the faithful. Verse 5, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 8. As I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, watch this, 
Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. Verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when some of his sheep have been scattered abroad, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the fountains and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and upon the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on fat pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I, myself, will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the crippled, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will watch over. I will feed them in justice. Wow. Talk about a powerful passage. I don't know if you've ever read that passage before. It, it still gives me chills when I read it. The Lord God, through his servant Ezekiel, is denouncing. He is denouncing the bad shepherds that were predators themselves. They were wolves in shepherds' clothing. Sound familiar? As I mentioned a moment ago, going back to Judas himself, chosen by Jesus, an apostle, betrayed our blessed Lord. He was corrupt, taking advantage looking out for himself alone. He would steal from the poor box, steal from the collections, the money that was set aside to support the ministry and to, to give to the poor. And to this very day, we have wicked shepherds, wicked pastors, wicked bishops who are in it for themselves. Not only do they not have the smell of the sheep, because they don't engage and interact and they don't have that familiarity and that intimacy because they don't minister to the sheep. They're in it for themselves. Not only do they not smell like the sheep, but they don't sound like the shepherd. And this is a problem. And again, not unique to our time, but in our 24-hour news cycle, we, we get the bad news sooner than in ages past. So we're more in tuned to the abuses, to the corruption that exists. And we mourn for all those faithful, all of the sheep that have been affected by wicked shepherds, bad shepherds. And just to be clear, there are wonderful and good shepherds. But we certainly cannot deny the reality that there are bad bishops and there are bad priests. It's, 
It's just a fact of, of the reality. And it's always been that case. We find here Jesus in the gospel identifying himself as the good shepherd. Jesus, as it were, is recapitulating the denunciation that God, through his servant Ezekiel, delivered to the bad shepherds of that particular day. And Jesus, in essence, without denouncing them, with the same ferocity with which Ezekiel, speaking on behalf of the Lord, denounced them, Jesus nevertheless is identifying himself as the good shepherd described in Ezekiel. Because it says, I myself will shepherd my sheep. I will seek out the lost, the scattered. I will bind up those that have been injured and wounded, the sick and the needy. I will seek them out. I will protect them. I will provide for them. I will feed them. I will lead them to to green pastures. I will lead them beside still waters. I will be their shepherd. They will be my sheep. And I don't know if you picked up on this. It says... Here, there's just there's so much to mine here. If you look at verse 12, it says, As a shepherd seeks out his flock when some of his sheep have been scattered abroad, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. He will save them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Did you pick up on that? What does that remind you of? Good Friday, on a day of clouds and thick darkness, here we have an allusion to what would unfold on that Good Friday afternoon. Remember when darkness covered the land, and it was the time of our Lord's crucifixion, and ultimately he would die at three o'clock in the afternoon. And so he's describing Ezekiel here, The Lord, through Ezekiel, is describing this day where Jesus himself, the good shepherd, will save. He will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered by sin. And that's the day of his crucifixion, the day of the atonement, the day of our redemption. There's so much here that can be mined. I just I hope that the impact and the power of this passage is not lost on you. So with this in mind, we go to Jesus and you read the words of our blessed Lord. <laughs> and in essence, Jesus is indicating to the religious authorities that he is this good shepherd that was spoken of by the prophet Ezekiel. It's deja vu all over again. And he is identifying himself and the criteria that we find, the description that we find in that chapter, chapter 34 of Ezekiel the prophet, Jesus here is describing as well. 
verse 15, as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now, let me back up because in verse 14, it says, don't miss this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. As the Father knows me and I know the Father. So he's describing there a knowledge in intimacy between the shepherd and the sheep that is likened to the knowledge and the familiarity and the intimacy between God the Father and God the Son. And that's beautiful. It's powerful. Why? Because in our Christian faith, we understand that by virtue of our baptism, baptism is is the doorway to the life of grace. There is in baptism the regeneration of the soul. Original sin is wiped away. We receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we are initiated into the life of grace, into the life of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where we're initiated into the life of grace. And ultimately, you and I, we have been created for this divine intimacy. Our ultimate goal in life is to behold God face to face. It's heaven, the beatific vision as we describe it in our Catholic theology. And and we're told in the catechism, in the very first paragraph of the catechism, by the way, so it's easy for you to remember. I don't have a slide for this. I wasn't prepared for this, but nevertheless, I'm going to share with you. In the very first paragraph of the catechism, we read, God, and I quote, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in an act of sheer goodness, freely made man to make him share in his own blessed life, close quote. See, God freely made you and he made me to make us partakers in his own blessed life, the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says, speaking here in verse 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me. As the Father knows me and I know the Father. Just think about that statement, the intimacy and the union between the father and the son. And he's likening his relationship with us using that image of the unity between the father and the son. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. The true sheep who belong to the sheepfold of Christ They enter into a divine intimacy with him. And by extension, obviously, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. They enter into this divine union that deepens and deepens. The more we surrender and cooperate with God's grace, we are filled with the life, the divine indwelling of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's powerful. It's beautiful. So he's describing this radical intimacy, this radical communion between the shepherd and his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own 
and my own know me, as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, I'm not a hireling. I'm not a substitute shepherd here. I'm not a wolf in shepherd's clothing. No, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 16, and I have other sheep. You're going to love this. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock, one shepherd. Now, let me stop there. (laughs) Because our blessed Lord here, he is making it very plain and clear. Here, this is an allusion to the Gentiles. Remember, he's in the temple in Jerusalem speaking to Jewish leaders, the authorities of that particular day. And he makes it very clear that he has other sheep that are not of this fold. He's speaking there of the Gentiles, the non-Jews that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now, this is very, very important, my friends, because obviously, if you know anything about church history, you know of the of the deep divisions and the the, the unfortunate and tragic uh, divisions and splinterings that we have seen erupt over the centuries in Christendom. Remember that Jesus Christ founded one church on the rock of Peter. Matthew 16, 18, we read, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Not my churches, plural, singular, my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Lord from the very beginning makes it very plain that he is desirous to establish and to build one church. He says here that there are other sheep that are not of this fold. I will bring them, must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And by extension, we know Jesus Christ founded a church. There shall be one church and one shepherd. Ultimately, our shepherd is Jesus Christ. He has clearly chosen his vicar from the very beginning, St. Peter, and his successors over the ages to this very day. His vicar is his representative, an icon of the good shepherd. And we need to understand that it is not the will of God. It is not the will of God that that we be fragmented as a body of Christ. It is a scandal that there are divisions in the body of Christ. And again, without going into any great detail regarding the history of Christendom, we know that that 500 years ago, there was a, a deep fracturing, a break with the Protestant revolt that then metastasized over the centuries to this very day, where there are a multiplicity of quote-unquote denominations and denominations springing from those denominations and so forth and so on, 
a continual fracturing of the body of Christ, a disunity, which is a scandal, which is a tremendous impediment for those who are looking at the church from without. They look at us and they see the divisions. They look and they see that the fragmentation, and it is a scandal. It is an indictment. That's why Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prays fervently that his disciples, that they may be one, his followers, that they may be one, as he and the Father are one. He prays for the unity of all believers. And it is tragic, my friends, deeply tragic, that we to this very day live in the midst of such strife and and, and such division and fragmentation. And I'm not even speaking solely of those that broke away from the one true church over the centuries, but there's even fragmentation within the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. There are rivalries and, 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 and factions and divisions fissures, and we're in a very, very difficult and tumultuous time. We're living through a particularly difficult epoch where there are rumblings of of further schism. You look at what's happening in Germany with the German bishops that I think are hell-bent on breaking from the one true church in order to pursue a worldly and secular agenda, ultimately a satanic agenda. That's the bottom line. And they are seemingly willing to break from the church in order to pursue their worldly ambitions and to reshape the church into their image. We're living through perilous times. Bishops against bishops, cardinals against cardinals. We're living in a time and an age of tremendous strife. And so we need to pray. (laughs) We need to pray and we need to be reminded fundamentally of, of the will of the Lord that we be one, one flock, one shepherd. Not I will build my churches, but I will build my church. My church will hear and heed my voice. And when the church speaks, remember what he says, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever hears you, hears me. The church is to be the mouthpiece of Christ here on earth. But nevertheless, we find ourselves fragmented. And so this Good Shepherd Sunday should remind us of what God truly wills and what he desires, and that is the unity of all Christians. But not everybody is seeking after the same shepherd. Not everyone belongs to the same flock. And there's a pervasive and pernicious error that persists to this very day, that of religious indifferentism. What does that mean? That means that there are many who contend that it really makes no difference what faith tradition you belong to, what church you go to, because ultimately we're all ascending the same mountain just from different vantage points, 
but it's the same mountain. We're all headed to the same place. We're on different roads, but they all lead to the same place. And so it doesn't matter. And so people, when they are formed and conditioned with that belief, that erroneous belief, then everything is watered down. And so they don't understand and appreciate the profound differences between the churches. And so it doesn't matter to them. And that places the sheep in jeopardy, in peril. Because to them, the world says it doesn't matter. But it does matter. There is one shepherd. There is one sheepfold, one flock. Jesus established one church. Not many, one church. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. And it's important for us. It's why every year we celebrate Good Shepherd Sunday. To reflect upon the identity of the shepherd. But again, the shepherd in relation to the sheep. And who are the sheep being described here? Jesus is speaking about Jews and Gentiles. And we know that with his glorious resurrection, he's going to commission the apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Go and make disciples of what? Of all nations. So this is the mission to the Gentiles, the mission ad gentis, to the nations. Because Jesus Christ didn't die for one people or for one nation, didn't die die exclusively for the Jews, but for humanity, for Jews and for Gentiles alike. There shall be one shepherd and one flock. It's impossible to justify this fragmentation, these deep divisions in Christendom. It's impossible reading the words of Christ himself, not just in this passage, but if you survey the entire New Testament, if you you read Ezekiel, (laughs) he makes it very plain. One shepherd, one flock, one sheepfold. And so we must pray fervently, first and foremost, for our own deepened conversion, that we can become docile sheep, that we can heed the voice of the shepherd. Because if we fail to recognize the voice of the shepherd, and that's why scripture study is so important, this is a key element in developing and deepening the communion with the shepherd and hearing and recognizing his voice, if you don't know the word of God, if you don't meditate on the words of Christ, then how can you come to know the voice of the shepherd? How will you not jeopardize yourself? How will you not put yourself in a position where you might mistake someone else's voice for the voice of the shepherd? Let me tell you something, Satan mimics, the enemy mimics the voice of the shepherd. You go back to the garden, I don't want to go too far afield with this, but to go off on a tangent, but look at the garden of Eden. Look at the dialogue between 
the ancient serpent and Eve. He was mixing truth with falsehood. And that's how he presents it. And he does to this very day. He, 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 he doesn't leap out of the, uh, from behind the door with a pitchfork and with horns and red and, and nasty and, 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 and frightful. No, he comes seducing us to lull us into complacency. And he can sound an awful lot like Jesus because he's cunning like that. And in order for us to discern the true voice of the shepherd, we must know his voice. How do we come to know his voice? By immersing ourselves in his word. By meditating day and night on his holy word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. That's why Scripture study is so very important. To heed the voice of Christ, which we find not only in the written word, but we find in the living tradition and patrimony of the church, the oral tradition and the preaching of the apostles and their successors in union with the Holy Father, in union with Christ himself. That's why Bible study is so important. How will we recognize the voice of truth? How will we recognize and identify the voice of the true shepherd when there are so many false shepherds out there who sound an awful lot like the good shepherd, but nevertheless, they are not the good shepherd. They are counterfeits. They are wolves in shepherd's clothing. And in order to discern the difference between the bad shepherds and the good shepherd, we need to immerse ourselves in prayer. We need to immerse ourselves in divine intimacy. We need to immerse ourselves in leading a sacramental life and in feasting on the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our blessed Lord to become one with him and to immerse ourselves in the study of of his holy word. That way we can discern between the voice of the evil one and the voice of the good shepherd. As the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock, one shepherd. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This charge I have received from my Father. One final point I want to make there, and that is that Jesus clearly here is making it abundantly plain that he is not going to be swept up by the events that will unfold. Again, this is John chapter 10, but 
in the succeeding chapters, we're going to see the drama of salvation, the drama of the passion of the Christ unfold. And be not mistaken, Jesus Christ was not swept up in events that were beyond his control. He makes it clear here repeatedly, no one takes my life from me. He lays it down freely. At no moment during the passion of our Lord was Jesus not in control. He was offering himself as a willing sacrifice for our salvation. That's a good shepherd. One who is willing and desirous not only to feed the sheep and to care for the sheep, but to even lay down his life for his sheep. And that is precisely what our blessed Lord did 2,000 years ago. He laid down his life for his flock, for his sheep. Let us pray in a particular way as we celebrate this Good Shepherd Sunday. Let us pray in a particular way for the chief shepherd, Pope Francis, who is in desperate need of our prayers, and for the bishops throughout the world, and for all the priests, our own pastors. Let us pray for them that God would continue to mold and shape them into his image, that he might mold and shape them into true and good shepherds in the image and likeness of Jesus himself, the good shepherd, that he might bind up and heal the wounds of those shepherds that have been wounded and are in pain or in need of healing and restoration, that he might minister to those bishops, those priests, those clergy, those shepherds that have deviated from the path, that have broken faith with the Lord and with his people, that he might bring them to their senses, that he might heal them of their afflictions, that he might restore them. We are in need of good shepherds, good priests, good, holy, and courageous priests, good, holy, and courageous pastors. Now more than ever, given everything that has happened, that has unfolded, especially as of late, we are going through a major crisis in our modern-day civilization. And I think you know this. And now more than ever, we need courageous shepherds that are willing to do the difficult thing, that are willing to speak truth to power, that are not willing to, to capitulate and to water down the gospel. Because right now, the enemy is running roughshod over the bishops, roughshod over the clergy, roughshod over believers. And there's a satanic, a satanic movement afoot that imperils and endangers our civilization as we know it. We are in steep decline. And so if ever there were a time for us to pray fervently for our shepherds, it's now. If we spend half the time we do complaining about our priests and complaining about our bishops, praying for them. If we spend half the time we do complaining about Pope Francis, complaining about this bishop or that bishop or this priest or that priest, 
We spend half the time we do complaining about them, praying for them. They'd be saints today. And we would not be in the situation we find ourselves in. And I say that not not merely to you, but I, I need to remind myself. And let me tell you something. We must pray for our shepherds. There is no way that we will be able to endure all that will befall us. This is only the beginning. Talk about perilous times. This is just the beginning. There is a chastisement that is befalling the church and the world that we have merited. And we need now more than ever to be prayed up, to immerse ourselves, to beg the Lord for mercy, and to pray for our priests and our bishops. Because their roles are indispensable. And I'm afraid that I too am guilty of not being as fervent. The older I get and the more I think the Lord reveals to me what is unfolding, the more fervent I have become in storming heaven and in praying for and fasting for my pastor, my bishop, the Holy Father, bishops throughout the world. Because we need to. It's not enough, in my humble opinion, that we throw up a Hail Mary here and there. But offer your rosaries. Remember, in the rosary, there is a prayer for the Holy Father and for his intentions. And every day, every time I pray the rosary, I remember the Holy Father. I pray fervently for him and for the bishops and for the clergy. And if you have not added that to your daily prayers, I encourage you to please do so because we need them. We need devout, faithful, holy, courageous shepherds to help us because we're living through critical times, decisive times. We need our shepherds. So pray, my brothers and sisters, join me in praying for our shepherds. Very quickly, and as you can see, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty passionate about this. I, I become more and more convinced of the urgency, of the need for us to storm heaven for our leaders. And I know that I, looking back, have not been as devoted as I've needed to be in praying for our bishops and our clergy. We need, we need to do that. We're reminded in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 754, and I quote, the church is accordingly a sheepfold. It's going back to what I said before in terms of there's one flock, one sheepfold. That's the church. The church is accordingly a sheepfold, the sole and necessary gateway to which is Christ. It is also the flock of which God himself foretold that he would be the shepherd and whose sheep, even though governed by human shepherds, are unfailingly nourished and led by Christ himself, the good shepherd and prince of shepherds, who gave his life for his sheep. Paragraph 775 states, 
the church in Christ is like a sacrament, a sign, an instrument that is of communion with God and of unity among all men. The church's first purpose is to be the sacrament of the inner union of men with God. Because men's communion with one another is rooted in that union with God, the church is also the sacrament of the unity of the human race. Remember, one flock, one sheepfold. And so, this paragraph speaking of the the sacrament, the church is a sacrament, a sign, an instrument of communion with God, of drawing all men. Remember what what the Lord said in, in his word, what God spoke through Ezekiel, that he will draw from all nations those sheep that have been dispersed in order to feed them. He will draw them all together. And again, we know full well that what God is describing through the mouth of Ezekiel is the one church that he would found on the rock of St. Peter. And 2,000 years have come and gone since the time of Christ, and the church remains the pillar and bulwark of truth, as the scriptures declare. While she is comprised of human beings, fallible human beings, broken human beings, sinners, nevertheless, she is at the same time, while being of human, institutional, she's also divine. She is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of the body. The soul of Christ, the Holy Spirit, animates that body. And so, mystically speaking, there's no there's an indefectibility of the church. No matter how sinful, how scandalous her members and her leaders might be, nevertheless, the church does not belong to us. It belongs to Christ. It is his body. And so this passage speaks to us of the sacramentality of the church as a sacrament of unity, drawing all the nations together into one sheepfold, one flock with one shepherd. Beautiful. In her, this unity is already begun since she gathers men from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues. At the same time, the church is the sign and instrument of the full realization of the unity yet to come. Close quote. Beautiful. Now we move very quickly to the first reading from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4. And here we have a continuation of the passage that we considered last week regarding Peter and his healing of the lame man, was born lame from birth. And there was fallout, because if you remember, in last week's study, Peter and John enter the temple and they encounter this lame man that was brought there every day by his friends for decades, and he would beg for alms, and Peter heals this lame man. He says, I I have no silver and gold to give you, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he takes the lame man by the arm and lifts him up, 
and he begins to walk and glorify God. And then Peter breaks into a sermon where he preaches powerfully, and we unpacked some of that preaching. The bottom line is that many came to believe, many were convicted by the preaching of the apostolic preaching of St. Peter, the charismatic preaching that called them to repentance and to conversion for the forgiveness of sins. And this had an impact, and word got back to the religious authorities. The temple guards and the Sadducees, they came and they seized the apostles, John and Peter, and imprisoned them and, and wanted to question them. And so they are here in this particular passage, they are before the Sanhedrin, they're before the religious authorities, and they are being questioned. And so let me just back up a little bit. I don't have it here on the slide, but I want to just point this out. And as they were speaking, this is Peter and and John communicating the good news, evangelizing in the temple. And as they were speaking, this is chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Remember what we talked about last week. And if you didn't check out last week's podcast episode, I'm going to link it up here above. You want to check that out. It'll make more sense if you check that study out first. But they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, just as Jesus had commanded them to. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the morrow, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 5,000 men (laughs) came to believe. Uh, Talk about powerful preaching. And people were converting. The Jews were converting. And you better believe that the religious authorities were not happy about that, so they wanted to seize them. They wanted to silence them. And so it says, On the morrow, verse 5, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? They're speaking about the healing of the lame man and and the preaching that ensued. Then Peter, this is verse 8, today's passage. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is, remember, chapter 2 of Acts describes Pentecost. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, with the unction, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and was preaching with boldness, working signs and wonders. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, by what means this man has been healed, be it known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Close quote. Simon Peter here is making it abundantly clear that they are preaching, that they are healing, that they are performing signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. As the Bible says, the name of Jesus, the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is from Philippians. And we hear in the proclamation of St. Peter this, this clarification, the fact that they're doing this in the name of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. And another feature of this message, and this is reminiscent of his sermon earlier, what we covered last week, he says, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Who is Peter speaking to? He's speaking before Annas, Caiaphas, head of the Sanhedrin, (laughs) the high priest, and the religious authorities, all of whom conspired to have Jesus put to death. And so he is preaching the gospel, announcing the gospel to the very men responsible for the death of our blessed Lord, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Again, he's preaching the resurrection. By him, this man is standing before you well. Then he reminds them of something. He reminds them of something that Jesus himself declared while he was engaging with the religious authorities, being questioned by them in that very temple. And this must have triggered their memories of Jesus when he stated this. This is the stone, and this comes from Psalm 118, which we're going to read in a moment. It's a psalm for today. It's a messianic psalm. This is the stone. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus referred to himself as that stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, the foundation stone. And so Peter here is preaching this, this message to the very men responsible for putting Jesus to death. And at the end here, he's declaring, and there is no salvation in anyone else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, that that really goes against the grain of 
so many religious-minded people in our day and age who have a hard time with this fundamental truth that there is only one Savior of the world, and it's Jesus Christ. There is only one Redeemer, and it's Jesus Christ. There's only one Mashiach, and he's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is salvation only in the name of Jesus and through Jesus Christ. Through no one else are we able to have access to salvation other than the person in the name of Jesus Christ. But yet there are many that contend that there are many ways to heaven. <laughs> Jesus is one among many ways. Or I've heard it even said that he's the privileged way to the Father. I don't think so. I don't find any of that language in the sacred scriptures. I don't find it on the mouth of Jesus, and I don't find it in the mouth of the apostles. Jesus is not the privileged way to the Father or to heaven. He is, as he declares himself to be, I am the way, the way, not one way among many, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Peter here is saying, and there is salvation in no one else. Not Buddha, not Confucius, not Muhammad. No, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so this notion of of universalism and universal salvation is contrary to the doctrine of Christ, the teachings of the church. No, not there are not multiple ways to the Father or multiple ways to heaven or multiple saviors or channels through which you can be saved. There is only one Savior and his name is Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. And so this, as you can see, these themes of of one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one church, one shepherd, one flock. This notion of Christian unity and we're united under one head, under the headship of Christ, who is the head of the mystical body, which is the church. Just read Romans chapter 12. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The writings of St. Paul in particular, they unpack this truth. But here we... We are reading the account of the apostolic preaching, which was unbending, uncompromising, not watered down, not filtered, not made politically correct. And thousands upon thousands came to believe in Jesus. Nowadays, we are in desperate need of that same kind of holy boldness. Today, we are in need of clarity, clarity in our doctrine, clarity in our teaching, clarity in our preaching, because what's going forth nowadays, it it lacks that boldness, it lacks that clarity that is characteristic of true apostolic preaching. We've lost so much of that, my friends, because so much of what passes for preaching and teaching today is fully accommodated to the itching ears of so many. 
we cannot compromise, my friends. We cannot. And and I certainly, in seeking to to share the good news, I, I, I don't represent myself because I'm not preaching myself. I, in the words of St. Paul, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And I'm not here representing my opinion, but I want to share and break open with you the word of God and the teachings of the church to be faithful to that deposit of faith, not to depart from it. As difficult and as challenging as that deposit of faith is and what it demands of us, I cannot depart from that. And neither can you. No one can. And still be living and operating within the will of God. Now, God does not will this disunity. God does not will this this scandal that we're embroiled in today. There's a lack of real integrity. And we must pray. We must pray first and foremost that God will give us the grace of a deepened conversion. In sharing this message, my friends, I don't want... I don't want you to to think for a moment that I'm pointing fingers and that I'm judging others. I'm indicted myself for the many ways in which I fall short. I'm convicted. I think we all need to be convicted because we're complicit in creating this, (laughs) this situation in which we find ourselves. And we're called not merely to lament, but we're called to repent and we're called to pray fervently for one another as God purifies his church. That's exactly what's happening today is God is purifying his church. We need to pray. We need to pray that God will be merciful in that purification, but nevertheless, it's necessary because we have strayed. We've not been faithful as we're called to be. And for that, the Lord will chastise us and will purify us, but he'll never abandon us. Like a good shepherd, he will discipline his sheep as a father disciplines his son. And we're in need of that discipline, that holy discipline. And so in conclusion, my friends, very quickly, we've, we have the responsorial Psalm, Psalm 118, a messianic Psalm The stone rejected by the builders has become the cornerstone, referencing and referring to Christ himself. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in man. (laughs) It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Oh, come on. This is just, uh, I don't know if it's hitting you the way it's hitting me. Because men will disappoint you. Princes and leaders will disappoint you. Lord knows we've had enough disappointment as we've seen man of God, bishop, priest, clergyman embroiled in scandals and, and, and just it, it's just been so disheartening. Again, not just people in the secular world, but even within the church. It's been heartbreaking, painful to watch but we place not our trust in them, but we place our trust in the Lord. That's the beauty of this particular psalm. 
that I think we desperately need to hear and need to pray. I thank thee that thou hast answered me and hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Beautiful. Second reading to conclude is 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. We read, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. I love this passage. I mean, I love... (laughs) I love John's letters. They they flow so beautifully from his gospel, which is so sublime, so rich and mystical in nature. And he speaks about what it means to be children of God. We're children of the Father. We're children of God. And it says here, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And again, it speaks to that dynamic of the shepherd. The shepherd knows the sheep and the sheep know the shepherd. They know his voice. And we share an intimacy, a divine intimacy. And because the world doesn't recognize Jesus, it doesn't recognize our dignity as sons and daughters of God. My brothers and sisters, we live in a world that does not recognize Jesus, his sovereignty, his lordship that does not acknowledge him as savior of the world and as king of the universe. Quite the contrary. We live in a society that utterly rejects Jesus, utterly rejects God, that wishes to excommunicate him from our midst, from all sectors of society, that wants to silence the church the way that the religious authorities 2,000 years ago sought to silence Jesus and by extension to silence his followers. And in this case, St. Peter, and to silence him from preaching and from teaching and from witnessing. But we will not be silent. We will not. We, again, in the words of the apostles, we will not obey men. We will obey God. For we have no choice here but to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his sovereignty, his lordship, to proclaim him as savior of the world. And there is nothing that can be done to dissuade us from doing just that. Let me tell you something. We are well within the bounds of outright persecution, which is coming, my friends. It's happening in different parts of the world but it's coming to our neck of the woods. It's coming to the Western nations. And even in our own beloved nation, we will see religious persecution outright. And so we must prepare ourselves, fortify ourselves by immersing ourselves in prayer, in 
leading a sacramental life and in immersing ourselves in the word of God and being emboldened by the witness of people like Simon Peter who spoke truth to power and was not deterred, not dismayed. He would not remain silent, but he would joyfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what you and I are called to do. It's not the job of the bishops and the priests alone, but every single believer, every Christian, every child of God is called to make him known. My humble and fervent prayer, my brothers and sisters, is that we will open ourselves up to the amazing grace that God wishes to pour out in our lives because he wants to use us to win souls for his kingdom while there is still time left. So let us repent. Let us repent and seek God's mercy and forgiveness. Let us begin anew to seek to build the kingdom of God, to proclaim the good news of salvation. My brothers and sisters, with that, we bring our study today to a close. I look forward to joining with you next week as we consider the readings for the fifth Sunday of Easter. Until then, my friends, as always, may the word of God continue to richly dwell in you. God love you.